Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Good morning. Welcome to uh, East Lake. We're so glad that you are here today. Um, if this is your first time, you picked a great day to uh, come check it out. We are on part three of a series we're calling uh, Per My Last Email, and uh, it's a series on grace. Uh, and the idea behind it being that we've all sent or received an email like that, where it says, like, you started off with Per My Last Email, meaning I've already talked about this. You just missed it, uh, ignored it, um, or are ignorant, don't care, don't like me. I don't know what it is, but it's something. Um, so, uh, and then we go on with the way. You have an opportunity for grace in that moment if you choose to uh, have grace, or somebody's extended it to you. And, and and so we, we, we're not talking about grace within the workplace necessarily. We're a church, right? And, and as a church, we're trying to discover what it looks like to live in the way that Jesus taught in the Tri-Cities, in our life, with our context, in our community, and the people that we do life with, and the people that we work with, and the people who call us parents uh, and live in our home. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we're trying to, uh, to figure out how, what grace looks like for us, and especially in our relationship with God. What is God's grace play out and, and how does it affect me and the activity in my life and looking back on it. So we've had a working definition of grace because there's a lot of different ways. If I you know, handed out post-it cards and said, write your definition of grace down, we'd probably have quite a few different answers. And so in order to kind of direct the angle in which we're gonna be talking about this, we said this, that grace is what I crave most when my guilt has been exposed. That's what, when I mess up, I want whoever is on the other end of my mess up to offer me a little bit of grace. I know I was late in the payment, but I would really love it if you could just take that off of the bill, right? And we make those phone calls and we, we try and work our angles. And I know, officer, that uh, they've recently reduced the speed on I-82 down to 55 miles an hour because of road construction. I don't see how road construction is my fault. And so therefore, um, and if it, that sounds personal, it's only because I live right by there and I'm like, 55, what are we crawling? I'm gonna walk home, I get home faster. Anyways, um, Officer, grace is what I need. And then the problem with grace, though, is the very thing that I'm hesitant to extend when I'm confronted uh, with the guilt of another person, right? Because then when they want grace from me, I'm like, wow, well, now it's complicated. <laughs> it was really easy when I needed it. And then when you're asking of it from me, it's complex and it's complicated and I'm not sure if I can do it, especially when their guilt has robbed me of something that I consider to be uh, valuable. So, um, and uh, perhaps the definition of this uh, resonates so deeply within us is because we've been on the receiving end of grace uh, for a long time. We said this, that it, when, we, when we are looking at this study of grace, um, we're looking at particular stories within the Bible that illustrate for us a little bit of this grace. And what I've tried to do is try to, to choose sort of lesser known stories from people to say, here's, here's, in, here's some indicative stuff about God's grace in the lives of some people that you may or may not have heard of, 
depending on your involvement of church growing up and how often those stories were told. Um, but uh, what, what we're gonna see is that grace has been involved since the very beginning because it's oftentimes easy for us to think that grace was like this New Testament phenomenon, that God, the God of the Old Testament was this God of law and retribution, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden Jesus like changed his mind or he evolved, like you evolved and, and, and now you like vegetables or something like that. And now God's like, oh, grace is, grace sounds better. Let's just go with grace. Um, and, and so there's a tendency in which to think, and, and you're not the only one that has done this. This has been kind of true for, for history. Like really, really smart people have thought, there's like a, the God of the Old Testament and then there's also the God of the New Testament. And there's some crossover, there's a Venn diagram where there is some crossover, but there's definitely parts where that's not associated with this. And, the, and, and what we said from, from, from here in, in this study is that I wanna focus on the idea or I wanna propose the idea that grace has been a part of the story of God's interaction with humanity since the beginning. From the beginning in the garden, there was grace, even when he kicked them out of the garden, even when there's rules and there's discipline, there's a way in which to see discipline as an exponent of grace. You love your kids and yet you also, because of your love for them, have to like put little obstacles in their way to keep them from choosing self-destructive measures. And that's not, and to them, that doesn't feel like love and it doesn't feel like grace, right? And, and, and to you, you go, you say things like, well, this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you, right? Uh, and, and then the question of, you know, where, where is that line? But, there, but there's grace. There's, there's grace in how we parent in that way. Um, and, and then last week, we also then uh, discussed this idea uh, that, that grace kind of works in, in a way that, um, that kind of shows us that we get oftentimes what we don't deserve, that, that sometimes uh, that, that, um, that, that grace comes in the form of maybe the absence of, of punishment, but also the blessing that we don't deserve. So there's like a multifaceted function to sort of this, this sort of thing. So anyways, that's, that's where we're catching you up if you're just jumping into this series. As always, all of our talks are gonna be on our app. You can go to the little apps thing and catch up. If this is your first week and this is interesting to you and you wanna go back and look at parts one and part two. We got two more weeks of this. We're gonna finish up in the Old Testament today and then we're gonna switch over into sort of a New Testament stories on grace um, starting in the next two weeks. But um, today I wanna kick things off by talking about, uh, I don't know what your history was in church, right? If you grew up like in, in church or conservative or Baptist or, 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 or Catholic or something like that. But um, if, if, if you did, and there's a good chance if you're American, that you had some sort of a, no, like very few people are walking in the building like this and church, what's, what, what do you, how do you say church? So what is church? Like everyone has some sort of a history of something. You got bus to classes or Sunday school classes with like felt things that go on the walls and, and whatever. Growing up um, in church, when you're committed to teaching the whole Bible, to come uh, to kids, you have to come up with creative ways to tell problematic stories. You know what I mean? That's, that's like the role of a Sunday school teacher is, and, and even in our, our things, we, we, we pay money to get this curriculum done so that they do this, this work for us to say, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna be committed to everything in here and, and at least talking about it to some degree, um, you have to be creative in talking about problem, problematic stories. And one of the ones that I remember vividly, I wanna rehash with you today, um, uh, came across through music. And, and oftentimes that is one of the easier ways to talk about problematic things in creative fun ways is to put it to music. Cause then you can, you sing problematic stuff all the time. Your kids sing problematic stuff in the car and you're like, what did you just say? And they're like, it's just a song, you know? And you're like, Do you, are you hearing what you're saying? Like that, that's, that's the beauty of like the trance that music sometimes puts us in. So 
One of those songs that I learned, that perhaps you learned, I don't wanna assume that you did, but I'm gonna sing a little bit of it and there's gonna be a few of you that are gonna understand where I'm coming from. If you're not associated with it and it doesn't make sense to you and you didn't sing this growing up, um, this one felt like a little jazz tune. It was a little, it was a little jazz to this one. It had like the this, this snaps. It was called Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. Anybody remember this? Yeah, a little had a little snap to it, right? You have to like kind of set the scene. It's like a, a smoky speakeasy jazz bar with a, somebody with a stand-up bass guitar and somebody on the drums only using the hi-hat, you know? It's and it's so smoky in there, you can barely see him. And it's like, and a one, and a two, and a Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. It's very jazzy, right? That's, what the, that's like the feeling of it, right? And as a kid, you grow up and you're like, oh, this is... This makes sense. And at the very end, they'd be like, great job, everybody. Good job today singing this song. Let's break for some royal dance Danish butter cookies. Really great work. And then we'll go home. You guys remember these, don't you? These were the best, weren't they? The pretzel looking ones? Absolutely. We're all back in Sunday school all over again. And, you know, the moral of the story as a kid, if you're singing this jazz tune, listening to this, is that no matter what walls are in your way or my way, a great and powerful God loves me and has promised to fight on my own behalf, which is like a really great, you know, good, inspire me to go be what I need to be or whatever the case may be. And yet at some point, you grew up and somebody gave you a Bible and this Bible didn't have any pictures in it. And it had the whole Bible in it. And you decided one day, I'm gonna read through this. Or I'm gonna read this story. Or somebody like me, like talk through this verse and then, and then you read the next part or uh, the rest of the story, as they say. Verse 20 of chapter six of Joshua. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And, the, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, yay. So every man charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And a one, and a two, and a one. Josh was at the battle of Jericho. Right? Like that feels a bit problematic. Especially when you're like, yeah, Brent, let's talk about God's grace in spite of all of this. And this is a prime example of why I can understand why some people want to reject the Old, version, Old Testament version of a God um, versus an appeal to the tender, compassionate God uh, of the New Testament. And part of the series has been to see the grace, again, through the entire biblical story, even in the parts that don't sound and feel like grace. And so perhaps in our understanding various perspective of God's grace at work in history, we can see its activity within our story. If we can even find grace in the story that comes like this, even bits and pieces of it, knowing that it's kind of you know, all over the place in this and knowing it's gonna take us to be able to set aside some preconceived conditions and, and set aside some emotions involved in some things, perhaps then if we can see God's grace in this, then when we reflect on our own story, and when we have, well, you know, we have all kinds of things that are problematic too, in terms of, I can't see how there could be a God who is gracious in spite of, list, and we list off all of these circumstances in our life or, or conditions that would justify some sort of an anti-stance towards God's grace or ever-present grace or his ability to be, you know, all this kind of stuff. But perhaps if we see it, maybe we can uh, 
understand it a little bit more. So if week one was even in discipline, we see signs of his grace, and week two is in spite of our behavior, his grace is made available to us. Then today is about us saying that there are at least, probably more, but at least three that I could come up with, big ones, three ways of explaining the conquest-driven God of the Old Testament while speaking also to his grace with a straight face. So how do you deal? Like even, even like, so, okay, Brent, you spent two weeks in Genesis, but that's like an easy book. Like, let's get into the harder stuff. Let's get into the, the conquest stuff of this. Let's get into a God who's about a people, but they're like just going through and just mowing people down as they kind of take over their land that's been promised to them and doing whatever they want to do. How do you justify, how do you see grace with that while keeping a straight face in all of this? A couple of different options for us. Um, number one is this, that God's wrath is his business. We must find the grace within it somehow. And that is a stance that maybe you grew up with. And that's a, that's a stance that a lot, of, a lot of people have. Like we don't understand it. Our ways are not his ways. Um, he does not have to explain himself to us. Um, and and the, to some degree, there is pieces of that that do resonate with me. Like I don't wanna create a God in my image who likes all the things that I like um, and just it, like works for me. That's, that's me creating an idol of God in my life. Like it's, it's fine that he's external to me and that I don't match up completely. That means that I have blind spots that I need to work on, right? So that's one of the ways and, pr- and probably one of the more well-trodden ways of understanding how do you find grace in, in this kind of a scenario. That's, that's one. And then I, I moved to number three. It's not that like I skipped to, I'm coming back to it, but I'm trying to show kind of on the spectrum of things, here's one over here and then here's one way over here. This one is that the conquest narratives of the Israelites in the promised land were a mythical tool for establishing a national identity. And the idea behind this is there's very limited archeological evidence of a million people moving from, from Egypt and exodusing into this land. You would think that there'd be kind of more things. You'd think that there would be more extra biblical literary studies talking about a massive people group making that transition. And yet there seems to be very, very little or none. And so perhaps all of this was just a bunch of people making up stories to kind of justify their existence to do some things. And that's definitely a spot that, you know, you'd have to consider, or it has some merit. And there's a lot of really smart people that believe that too. And then somewhere in the middle is this idea that his grace can be both harsh towards sin and merciful towards sinners. That God, again, has this ability to kind of do maybe a little hand in both. And it would be probably somewhere in the middle of it's, there are things that appear or seem to be harsh. And yet in the overall scope of things, um, uh, there's a bigger thing at play. And for some, sometimes in the middle of something, I cannot understand how this could be beneficial to me. And it's only at the end of my life in reflecting back on it that I go, I understand what you're doing. I still would have played the cards different. I still would have done things different. But I can see how, um, how I was able to grow and there were things that I learned about you and about my own personal existence and about personal faith through this season, this season in the desert or the wilderness um, that I don't think I would have learned had I been in a, in, in a season of blessing my whole life. And that's not to justify it. And I don't know what you're going through and, 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 and all of that, but I, I just, um, I, I want to kind of illustrate that so that we can look at grace perhaps a little bit from that perspective. And, and I would say that the, the, where my stance is is probably somewhere between two and three, I don't know. Um, and, uh, but I wanna try and illustrate this and, and walk us through an explanation that looks like this, 
so that perhaps we have a better understanding of grace. And again, if we have a better understanding of grace, then we are better able to see it uh, within our lives. So um, we're gonna jump into this. A historical context for the situation uh, with Jericho uh, was simply this, that 600 years before, or 650 years before this whole battle, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho thing, um, God made an unconditional covenant with Abram, uh, a man who would eventually come to be known as Abraham, promising that he would become a father of a great nation, right? Go out and count the stars if you can. You're gonna have a huge family, which is like this big deal because he's like, I don't have any kids. And then he's like, I have one. He dies with one kid, right? And it's like, it's not really a great family. We can't even fill up a a Camry, you know what I mean? Like, let alone a 15-passenger van. Um, uh, I wouldn't say that that's a huge family, that he would receive a special blessing, that he, he looks up and he says, Abraham, I'm gonna bless your family so greatly that you are gonna be, you're gonna see this and out of the abundance of what you have, you are gonna be a blessing for the world, that the world is gonna be blessed because of the way that you're blessed. And third, that his descendants would receive the land of Canaan as a perpetual inheritance. I'm gonna give you a specific land. It's gonna be this land. It's gonna be what's, what they would come to know as the promised land, promised by God, your land in perpetuity forever. This one is still being fought over and played out even in today's news about what exactly uh, that means. And that last one though came with a bit of a caveat. And the caveat was this, God looking to Abraham saying, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves and afterward they'll come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And we know that the the Exodus narrative and the end of Genesis and the first part of the few chapters of Exodus illustrate this exactly. And whether that was kind of post-dated and somebody wrote about this later, you know, or whatever, who who knows, to kind of make sense of what happens. Sometimes we do that. Um, But what their stance is, is that in the 650 years between Abraham's promise that from God that there's gonna be this land that has been given to you, there's gonna be a long, long period, 400 years uh, or over that, 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 that there's gonna be, you're gonna be stuck somewhere else. And in the meantime, there's gonna be other people who enter into the promised land and someone else makes their home there. Silly then, they didn't know it was reserved for you. And so when you exodus out of this and move on, um, you're gonna take these people, this large mass of people, into this land and you're gonna tell these people, you're gonna give them a couple of options. One, move along, this is ours. Two, fight us and let's see who wins. Let's see whose God is bigger. Or uh, number three is surrender the land and try to this neighbor thing on for size. Those are your options when it comes to this sort of thing. And, and we are sitting here with our modern day sensibility saying, ah oh, yes, colonization and religion going hand in hand, how appropriate, right? And my response to that would be, well, please stop acting like that's exclusive to religion, right? People have been doing this since the dawn of time. That's a human thing. Read a history book. Anyways, <laughs> verse 16, I would say this. This is the concept that they would have. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So this is, this is sort of a way of, un- and all I'm trying to do, because I, I know that there might be people who'd be like, I can't ever get behind a God who would allow this to happen. Or from his, like, you can't speak of God's grace. And then this, I, I, I totally understand. And I'm not trying to convince you or be like, you have to believe this or, or else please leave or whatever. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to create an opportunity, a space that if you wanted to potentially believe something, you could believe. In the same way, like there's situations in life that your, your, your spouse or significant other is like, 
here's what happened. And you have that in that moment to kind of choose to believe them or not to believe them or to believe the best about them or to, to try and not, to not immediately resort to suspicion, but start with trust. Listen, I'm gonna lead with trust until you prove me wrong, right? Um, like I'm gonna choose to believe the best about you. I'm gonna choose to believe that there's a path forward with something like this. That, that's the goal of today is to say, okay, we've got some conquest driven stuff and then you wanna talk about God's grace. How do I believe that? Well, here is one way of doing that. One way of doing that is understanding that what he's saying here is that in, your, in the fourth generation, your sentence will come back here. The, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. There's a qualitative or quantitative measure of things happening. While Israel is, under, uh, or is becoming a nation under the watchful eye of Pharaoh, the people groups living in the land promised to Israel were busy creating cultures that were pagan even by ancient standards. And what we know from biblical textbooks, but also just common like secular archeology span is that, the, that ancient civilizations, specifically in this area and this time, were pretty bad people. Like, it wasn't great, guys. Uh, incest, bestiality, institutionalized sexual abuse of women, child sacrifice, and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And, and it's, it, was, it was gruesome. It was, um, it was not beneficial for, for marginalized people groups. It was, it was really an awful spot. And it, and it gets to that spot where even in modern day times, our response sometimes when we hear stories coming out of genocidal situations is someone should go in there and do something about that. Or what do we say? The UN should step in there. And, how, and every, what, every five, 10 years where like Haiti's gotten so bad it's, or this or the genocide in Rwanda's gotten so bad, we, somebody needs to do something. Somebody needs to send something, somebody in and fix things or prop things up or get things back to normal or provide, provide a little bit of um, consistency in terms of justice. So that, and then, but then it's like, well, can we, shouldn't we allow them to kind of have their space? Do we want to be the, the, the white saviors that come in and help things out? I totally understand. Like it's a, it's a moral dilemma. It's a, what do we do? When do you step in? How do you know? I don't know. Where's the line in which we must do something and step in and fix things or not fix things, but at least get things on the right foot versus letting people do what they are doing, like the, having their own independence. It's a tricky spot. I don't have an answer for that. That's, a, that's what's called a moral quandary or moral dilemma. Like we have to kind of figure that out as a nation and do this. But the bottom line is, I think everyone agree, there's a line somewhere. There's a line somewhere, right? Nobody, nobody thinks the allies stepped in too early to Auschwitz. You know what I mean? Nobody's like, well, they should have given them a, like a couple more months. Nobody thinks that. It should have been earlier, all of that. So we, we, we understand there's, there's like this step of going in. So this idea of, all right, what's one way in which to think of this and still have God's grace as a true and uh, real element is that God looked at this, he watched them and he, he watched them for hundreds of years go through a pattern where things got really, really bad. This quantitative phrase, full measure, gives them ample time for perhaps an opportunity for repentance and abandoning of their wicked ways. And over and over again in scripture, we're gonna see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament is, is, is a certain part of God's character being that of forbearance or being willing to put up with something for a length of time. Being, being willing to overlook things in the short term while still having a long-term outlook of we're gonna fix. Like you have, I mean, as a parent for your kids, you have forbearance for them to a certain degree. Like you don't snap at them the first time that they're late for curfew. Maybe you do, I don't know. But for the most part, you, you figure out, I can't just react all the time. I've got to allow them space to kind of develop their own personality and be a teenager. But then there's a line in which being a teenager is 
being a jerk. And then I got to step in, right? So this idea of forbearance, and then, and then let's flip it on, on you. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful in my personal history that God operates with the sense of forbearance, <laughs> that he has put up with crap from me enough times to allow me the space to either figure things out or undergo the discipline, either self-imposed or externally imposed on myself to change my behavior, fix my ways and get better right? life, right? Like God's forbearance is kind and it's, it's, it's a, it, it, it's, um, it, and this is what's been illustrated here. He had this forbearance for a while, which then becomes like this, a little bit of a thorny question. How would they even know that their pagan practices are offensive to God? How would they even know? This is a nation that, you know, they didn't have, there's no Bible, there's no scripture, there's no Jesus at this point. How dare God be like, you can't do that. That doesn't, that's not good. Well, who defines good for them? I understand. Perhaps chances were offered. Perhaps over a period of 400 years, we don't have any history of this, but perhaps prophets were sent there. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to kind of prophesy and be like, you guys, what you're doing is terrible and it's offensive to the one true God, so like change your ways. And the story is that they did, that they responded. They, they, so perhaps something like that took place. I don't know. I'm just trying to create a pathway and opportunity to understand how could God's grace still exist if some of these things are happening. Perhaps there was plenty of opportunities to come back from this and that didn't work out. And one option is to believe that God dealt with them fairly. And one of the reasons that I opt for this take, and that might, and I'm going to leave that there because then you got to figure out what you want to do with that, especially if you're like, I'm not sure about the whole God thing. And I, I tend to be a little bit like um, anti, I tend to like be skeptical about God's, uh, about God's involvement or God's grace, especially because I've read all this stuff and I know this stuff. I totally understand. But one reason why I would recommend or, or personally for me, I've opted for this sort of take to, a true, to replace uh, suspicion with trust that God must have known what he was doing and that his grace is sufficient even in times like this is because of a story that I wanna talk about, a miniature story within the bigger story that happens. It shows up in Joshua chapter two. And here's what it says uh, in Joshua chapter two, verse one. The jo then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed here, stayed there. And again, this is one of those little, maybe obscure stories that you may have heard of or maybe not have heard of. But Joshua's on this conquest. They get to the city and he's like, go into here, especially. I want you to scout things out, figure out where their weak spots are, figure out how many people they have, the information so we have to go with this. And he found the perfect cover. Go and stay in a prostitute's home. That way, if anybody ever asks, is there anything suspicious going on? They're like, most nights there is. Yeah, absolutely happening in this house. Perhaps that you can get away with scouting these things out. Verse two says this. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. We're on to this. Joshua sent some scouts into the area to survey the terrain and the city's defenses, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may be able to catch up with them. This is not true. This isn't what actually happened. She hides them in her, uh, in her attic or her roof or under some, some things in there. She's at risk of you know, massive trouble, both for doing this, but also then lying about it, both putting the city at jeopardy, but also then you know, 
uh, not coming forth with it when confronted with the truth. Potential execution, capital punishment is at play with all of this. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road. They bought the story that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and where she had hid them and said to them this, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Your story and your reputation precedes you. We've heard what has happened before. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Meaning we we are terrified at what you've been able to do. And your God clearly, at this point, she's still operating at a sort of a polytheistic sort of mindset of, we have lots of different gods. Our God's pretty good. He's going you know, we've built this great city. We've had a great life. We've done this sort of things, but it seems like your God might be bigger. So she's not monotheistic. She's not saying yours is the one true God, the only God. It's like, your God is really, really good. It seems like your God is better. She's dealing with this sort of mixed sort of religion, polytheistic sort of sense in all of this. Whereas her countrymen are armored up and prepared for war, she surrendered and asked for protection. She says this, now please, now then swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them that you will save us from certain death. And after dark with the city gates closed, They open up a window on the backside of her house that faces the wall. They let down a rope. They go away and they begin to go do this. But before they leave, they tie a scarlet cord in her window so that later on the Israelite army would know which apartment they were to spare during the battle. And their promise to her was that, yes, we will spare your life. And anybody that you know that perhaps is going to, uh, that you want to save, bring them under this house and whatever happens, uh, this house will not be affected with all of this. Anyone gathered in her quarters on that faithful day would be saved. And if you're reading this, and especially if you've come after, um, you know, you've just read through Exodus and you've done this and you've read through the Passover, you recognize the similarities, right? The callbacks to the Passover itself in Egypt when the Israelites are let out, right? They do this, this final meal and, and um, it says that any, and the, the, the thing with them is any any, any lamb's blood that is on the doorpost, the angel of death in that last and final plague will pass over this. That's why they call it Passover. It's their, their last sort of message about the, the sovereignty and the greatness of the Israelite God and why Pharaoh, you should let my people go. And it's very clear, like the language that's used in there is very open. It's like anybody who is able to do this, it's not just any Jewish home or any Israelite home that has this. It's almost like there's even grace within this like massive amounts of, kind of warfare and all this kind of thing that's going on about perhaps there were Israelites who were like, hey, I've got some Egyptian friends who I'm gonna let them in on the secret. I'm gonna go to them and say, hey, just so you know, something's coming down, something's going down tonight and it's not good. My recommendation, if you trust me and if, you, if we're friends and if you believe me at all, sacrifice a lamb, take the blood and put it on the doorpost and perhaps you too can be saved. Like there's like this minuscule things of grace within this. And I think that that's kind of happening here. Like this story is kind of showing that this is a pattern for God. As God extended his grace to the Egyptians and Israel's tormentors at that time, so he extends grace to a pagan prostitute who knew nothing about God other than the name and his existence or the fact that she was aware of this sort of 
polytheistic battle that's taking place. She didn't know all the rules. There's no runway for her to prove her spoken belief. I believe this thing will give me six months and prove it, right? There's nothing like that. They were, she's complicit by association, the fact that she's inside the city and the part of this people group. And then God gives these unique orders. Seven days, you're gonna march around the city for six days and on the seventh day, we're gonna sound the trumpets and do this. Why seven days? What's the significance of that? You know, there's perhaps some numerology sort of stuff in there involved. I wonder though, if it's just grace. I wonder if it's a chance for her to kind of get the word out to other people. Listen, tie a scarlet rope on your window, come to my house. Seven days for her to work through even her own story. Seven days for her to develop who she's gonna invite and who she's gonna bring in here and save in all of this. Intimidation perhaps, or maybe a last chance for Rahab to tell people she loves of what's about to come. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted and the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. And this is back to that first verse that I said was problematic for us that we do this. And then it goes on. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her. In accordance with your oath to her, so the young men who had done the spine went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. <clears throat> they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside of the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men. Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Interesting bit of information that's provided to us. And I think there's something there. I think there's some... I think there's some meat on that bone in terms of like what is being told here, what's being communicated, what is it about God's grace that shows up in this even last piece of information that she lives among us even to this day. A Canaanite prostitute who otherwise would have been stoned under the law recently received through Moses becomes an accepted member of the community, an adopted daughter of the covenant. She becomes one of us, right? Not on the outskirts of Israelite society, subjected to leftovers. She marries an Israelite man named Salmon. She gives birth to a child whose name is Boaz. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he, he goes on to marry Ruth, perhaps inspired by his father taking, uh, you know, uh, like this, this like personal thing of, of, of reaching out and perhaps marrying someone uh, that isn't involved in it. He marries Ruth. They have a child. And eventually, when Matthew would go on to describe Jesus, when, when, when the author, when the, uh, the gospel writer, Matthew, when he's trying to say, here's my perspective on who Jesus was and tries to build the case for why Jesus was significant and different than all the rest. He begins with a genealogy, a way of kind of tying Jesus into history. And in that genealogy, he lists this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab. I'm just going through this fast because it doesn't matter. Um, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. There we go. That's where we're trying to get to. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And then it ends. Not Rahab, the prostitute, just Rahab. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was but Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. And it's almost at that point then that, that Matthew pauses. He takes a deep breath and then he goes on from David all the way down to Jesus. Tying into this massive, like, we, we know who we're dealing with here. This is the Messiah. He's trying to build a case for the Messiahship of Jesus. But it's significant in this. 
Before Israel showed up outside of the walls of Jericho, Rahab wore a label. Her neighbors, her fellow citizens, her customers, and even her parents knew her as Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute. No doubt she felt the indignity of your occupation. Regardless of their culture or religion, women typically don't choose that profession. Even historically, they feel oftentimes forced into it without options. But when given the opportunity between dying with her fellow countrymen and surrendering to God, she chooses the latter. And as a result, a couple hundred years later, she gets a different title or a different label given to her, Rahab, the mother of kings. Rahab, the mother of kings. It's a really incredible story of God's grace in, in the, right in the middle of a story of, the, of something that's a little bit bigger and, and wider and expansive and a little bit more complicated to do it. But this grace, this kind of grace, man, that's obvious and it means something and it feels something to us. Like we read that and we're inspired and we go, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful example of grace, of someone taking a small step towards something and God showing up in a big way and her allowing her and making her a major piece of the puzzle of what he's doing in the world. And the truth is, I think perhaps the reason it resonates with us is because we all have kind of a label of our own, right? We all have a label that has kept us from approaching God or perhaps approaching church or living with shame, some sort of a label, something that we did, something we've done, something where, where we came from, about what we believe, don't really belong, don't really fit, some label that we wear. And isn't it interesting that when the Israelite men who were in her house that day spoke with her um, and offered to spare her life, they said nothing about her lifestyle. It wasn't like, you know, well, as long as you are willing to stop what you're doing and recognize this life of sin, then we can offer grace to you. Abandoning her trade didn't seem to be part of the deal. It wasn't mentioned in there. Changing her life wasn't discussed. What did she do? What took place? She acknowledged the supremacy, the sovereignty of God, surrendered herself to that idea, and then she hid men on her roof. She did what made sense. That's it. Her label wasn't an obstacle to God, and neither is ours. Neither is ours. You, like Rahab, whatever label that you wear are invited as you are, label and all. You, like Israel, have been invited to join God in relationship initiated by faith, not adherence to a set of rules. And that is the beautiful way of grace. And it's been that way since the beginning, since the dawn of existence. Listen, grace doesn't require people with embarrassing labels to shed those labels. It's a prerequisite for his grace. Grace is what empowers us to eventually do so. His grace isn't like, I'll do this as long as you, you know, decide and give me a proven track record of this. No, grace doesn't demand. Grace assists us. It demands nothing from us. So perhaps in this story, what is the moral of this story? It's not that God is so great on our side that whatever walls we're facing, if we just sing six days in a row and pray for it, then the walls come tumbling down. Perhaps, maybe, I don't know. But when it comes to your labels, current or past, God is slow to judge and more than willing to deliver. I don't know what kind of labels you feel like you've had. I don't know, you know what, how, how that's affected your ability to connect with, a, with, with God or with church or people or whatever. But man, one of the beautiful parts of the story, one of the pieces that I don't want to miss, one of the pieces that, that show me that, um, that there, there's, there's a bit in here that perhaps make, helps me make sense of its activity in my life is how he dealt with 
this situation and what he decided to do and what he opted to do in this. That although there are a bigger mess at hand and things needed to be taken place, that even in that, there's always been little small outlets of I'm still, but I'm still good. You know that I'm good. And I'm giving you offer, offer for repentance and a chance to move. And if you'll take one small step in my direction, if, you, if even just you'll recognize this, she did nothing except recognize, I don't know, feels like that you're like, there's a bigness here. There's, a, there's something here that I'm subjected to, that I'm sort of accountable to something here. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. I think her process towards redemption and faith, I think that that was a long time coming. I don't think that that day she snapped and she's like, you know what? I know what I gotta do. I think it was long and drawn out and that there was grace in all, involved in all of that. And it didn't demand something from her. It assisted her in becoming who God wanted her to be and who she eventually ended up being. Not Rahab the harlot, Rahab the mother of kings. So I don't know what your label is. My prayer is in this story that we wouldn't get too lost in the weeds of where's God's grace in that thing. But man, look at that story. Look at that. If that's how he deals with people with labels, what does that mean for me? Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that whatever labels we walked in with this morning, whatever labels we feel like we've walked around with for years, that you don't really care about that. That you, that your grace is sufficient for me. And once we begin to understand it, then when we sing songs and say things that speak about your amazing grace, it's not just words of a song, but it's something that means something to us. That it is truly and deeply amazing that you would love and want a relationship with someone like me. Give us the wisdom to know what that implications of that grace means for us in our life and the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.